Who is Carmen? Is she really the exotic femme fatale of popular imagination, or is there more about her story that can be told? How could this be accomplished? Welcome to the first of two special instalments of Thinking with Opera, recorded live at a seminar in the Howard Assembly Room at Opera North in February 2022, as part of the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds, and supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. I'm Professor Edward Venn from the School of Music at the University of Leeds and Opera North's Academic in Residence 2022-23. The starting point for our afternoon of conversation was Edward Dick's acclaimed 2021 production of Bizet's Carmen for Opera North. Carmen, Carmen Cheetah, the woman and her performative identity, the authentic persona and the artificial. This is one of a number of different binaries that cut across the opera. Self and other, angel and fallen woman, Don Jose and Escamillo, male and female, fate and freedom. We'll hear from personnel from across Opera North and a leading academic about the many ways in which different operatic components come together to create meaning in this and other productions of Carmen. Sometimes the different media work together, sometimes they conflict in interesting and productive ways. Sometimes, in some productions, they don't work together at all. Luckily, that wasn't the case with Opera North's Carmen. Stuart Leakes is the Opera North editor. He edits and coordinates opera and concert programmes for the company including programme books for the Festival of Britain in 2013 and the Complete Ring Cycle in 2016. The book, Opera North at 25, that Stuart edited in 2003, is a must-read volume for anyone interested in the history of Opera North. Carmen is an increasingly difficult piece to pull off, and we sometimes find that the worlds created on stage come into productive conflict with the world that Bizet constructed through his music and the libretto. To begin, I asked Stuart to comment on the settings of Opera North productions over the years and how they affected the audience's perception of the opera. I think we're going to sort of focus really on three Opera North productions, obviously the the current one, um, but also the previous one which was, was first done in 2011 and the one before that, which was, was 1998. There were a couple of productions prior to that, uh, so very, very brief history lesson. The first time that Opera North performed Carmen was in 1980. And at that time, Opera North was actually English National Opera North. We were still part of ENO from which the company was born. So many of the productions in those early years were actually borrows of existing ENO productions. So the first Carmen here was a John Copley production, uh, and I would imagine probably pretty trad, given the director and the time that it was done as well. The second production was much more radical. It was 1987, it was directed by Richard Jones and designed by Nigel Lowry, who went on a few years later to, um, to produce probably the most controversial ring cycle in Covent Garden's history in the 1990s. And there, Carmen Opera North was, was, was pretty controversial as well, I gather. That had one revival, and then there was a new production in 1998, which is really our starting point, which was directed by Philida Lloyd. And that production 
I think what a lot of the thinking behind it was to really situate it or position it almost as if it were a musical. As you probably know, there is a musical version of Carmen, which is uh, Oscar Hammerstein's Carmen Jones. And I think, in a sense, that was sort of slightly the kind of inspiration behind some of the thinking about this production in 1998. It was sung in English, which is not insignificant, I think, in terms of part, being part of that project to communicate directly with a, an audience that perhaps didn't already know the work. Because at that time, Opera North wasn't surtitling productions. So if we'd sung it in the original French, people would have come to it without the aid of, of surtitles. So doing it in English, and bearing in mind this is an opera that has dialogue, and I think Opera North has always done it in the dialogue version rather than the recit version. All of those things, I think, were about um, creating an event that was going to be as accessible as possible to newcomers. And the feel of the production was quite contemporary, and that's also the case with the most recent two productions, and had a, I didn't see it, but quite a, a, a fairly oppressive South American feel. The, the look of it was quite naturalistic. I think it had a big, heavy set. I think it had great big kind of ceiling fans going on to kind of aid that sense of, of heat. And I think that was the kind of environment in which in which it happened. I guess in some senses that production would have really emphasised the exoticism of the music, the way in which the Spanish music in the opera is figured as other. Yeah. Um, which I think is quite an interesting part of Bizet's score anyway, that much of the music has a contemporary Parisian French feel and actually the Spanish music of Seville is always something exotic and um, captivating. And I think this these images seem to really speak to that. Things change, of course. Yes. So we go on to, to 2011. Uh, and this is a production that was directed by Daniel Kramer, who in recent times has actually been artistic director of, of ENO, not, not any longer. And again, it's another relocation. It was still, in, in this case, it was very much Seville, but it was Seville in an American state. And I think there really is a Seville in an American state. I can't remember which one now. And I think that it was kind of the, the, the general environment was a kind of redneck sort of territory, really, that we were in. Um, probably quite 70s, maybe 80s in, in feel um, in terms of the, the kind of period for it. It had two runs with different Carmens in each. But as originally performed in the first one, it was Heather Ship, mezzo-soprano, slightly older than maybe Carmen is sometimes cast, and a sense in terms of the relationship between uh, her and Don Jose that she was a woman who had far more experience of life than he did, and that he sort of ended up in a world where he is somewhat out of his depth. And what's sort of quite interesting, just picking up on, on what Ed was saying about kind of the angel and the devil aspect, which is very, very unsubtly presented, I think, in this opera, in the way that, you know, Michaela, we often see as sort of in, in the blue dress, which is actually mentioned in the text in the first act, uh, blonde hair against, you know, the, the devil of Carmen, uh, who is often dressed in red, um, you know, sort of dark uh, compared to Michaela's 
fair, and I think that duality is sort of built into the opera. I mean, it's probably just worth remembering, too, that neither Michaela or Escamillo actually occur in the Prosper Merime story on which the opera is based. These are characters that were invented by Bizet and the, and the librettists um, you know, for the purposes of the opera. And I think Daniel Kramer gave Michaela quite a hard time. She's pretty deranged. She was kind of like, uh, I don't know if, you'll, if you will remember her, but an Amer a rather infamous American politician called Sarah Palin, um, who was kind of very much in the news at the time, had sort of been potential running mate for, for vice president, as I, as I remember it. So, in a sense, that choice that Don Jose has to make in Act 3 between Carmen and Michaela didn't quite work in the way that it perhaps ought to in, in terms of the dramaturgy of the piece because Michaela, you know, as I said, was quite a kind of unhinged character in this, this conception of it. So, a really different world. Again, really very detailed. It was, I still vividly remember with this show we got to the end of the second half, and it was, it was a total kind of theatrical extravaganza. And the curtain at the end of the first half, there was so much going on on stage, particularly on the fore stage, that I, had, I completely missed at the dress rehearsal that, that, that poor Ozuniga was actually being garroted backstage. Um, quite an important detail, which, <laughs> which <laughs> there was just so much going on. So, yeah, it was a production that was very controversial. It was controversial partly, actually, because there was a scene in which Heather, who is such a fearless performer, actually went topless, and that got a lot of attention. It was also controversial, I, th I think, partly because of the relocation, partly because of the period, partly because it, I think, in the last act, became quite surreal in terms of the world. But also there were some quite significant cuts as well. I mean, for instance, the, the kind of smugglers quintet, which is quite a famous piece of music in the opera, was cut in this production for reasons of sort of, you know, the kind of theatrical, dramatic conception that Daniel Kramer had. Wonderful, thank you. And um, then we move forward in time to the current production and another production which abandons Seville as a location and recreates its own yes. world. Yeah, and I think in a sense the current production is a little bit less specific in terms of location than either the Philadelphia Lloyd or the uh, Daniel Kramer productions. It's a slightly more metaphorical space, and I think what Edward Dick, who's the director, really wanted to, was to establish a border town. That's the kind of key thing. It doesn't matter quite so much where that border town might be. I think you would probably sense from the overall feel of the show that it's probably maybe like somewhere on the Mexican border, maybe. But it's the kind of place that nobody really wants to end up in. You know, so the soldiers that we see at the beginning, you know, they are probably, I think, as Ed said, kind of like C-list soldiers. This is kind of the gig that you get if you're not very good at being a soldier. And the kind of environment that he's creating is a world in which things are being shipped to and fro across the border. And that everybody who works in this town really works in the service industries that sort of supports, you know, kind of like the smuggling operation, which in this case is very clearly drug smuggling. One of the main settings in the opera originally, which is the bar that Lilas Pastia runs, really kind of extends in this production to, to sort of occupy 
most of the stage time. So that's actually where we are at the very beginning in, in, in the first act. Of course, um, you know, Ed, Ed mentioning Seville there, in the original scenario for the opera, we are in, in a square in Seville. There is a cigarette factory, which is where, where the women work, and then there's the, the, the garrison for the soldiers close by. I gather that this, it was based on a real cigarette factory in Seville, which apparently the building still survives. I think it's apartments now, but apparently you can, you can go there. But none of that in this, in this production. And I think, I don't want to sort of jump ahead too much, but I think um, the, the kind of title of this event, Carmen and La Carmen Cita, Carmen Cita, is, is something that was very much, that distinction was very much key to sort of Ed's uh, conception of this production, these, these sort of two identities of Carmen. So the, the girls in, who are working in the cigarette factory in the original scenario in this production become performers in Lilas Pastia's bar, which is a kind of burlesque club, I suppose. And what they are doing when they make their first entrance, where they have their chorus, where they're, they're singing about cigarettes, is that actually this becomes a number that they do within this particular environment. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to pick up on that idea of this metaphorical world taking place in a border town. And of course, at the start of this symposium, I mentioned a number of binaries that come in the opera. But of course, a border town exists in that liminal space between binaries. It's in neither one place mm. or the other. And I think one of the things that struck me about this opera, seeing it in its previous run, is the way in which artifice is used, people perform their way out of this situation and challenge some of these binaries. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about the performance aspect of that? Yeah, so I think this conception of Carmen and the Carmen Cheetah is, it's partly coming out of the kind of piece that Carmen is, which was first performed at the Opera Comique in Paris. So this was not grand opera, and that's kind of quite important to, to bear in mind. And, and the librettists particularly kind of ran into trouble with the management because the management, you know, the management regarded the Opera Comique as a family-friendly uh, theatre. And this, you know, this story was already famous, the Prosperame story. And they didn't think that this was going to be fit subject matter for their, for their audiences. So, yeah, it was, it's a piece in which, particularly in the, in the sort of first two acts, is very much in that tradition. It's a number opera, you know, you get musical numbers, they're interspersed with dialogue. It comes a little bit more through composed in the latter stages. And so anybody who's doing it, in a sense, has kind of got to, got to deal with that sort of structural fact. I think the other thing to say that is important is that we get very little backstory for Carmen in the, in the opera as written. In the Merrimay, for instance, we know that she, she had a husband, um, a one-eyed bandit who was, a, who was you know, a murderer. None of that's in the opera. Interestingly, nobody ever does this in performance because there's so much, there is a lot of dialogue uh, which is usually cut to the bone. But in the, in the, in the original text, of the opera, um, there's quite a long scene where Don Jose has a, a monologue uh, in which he talks about his background, he talks about his mother, he talks about his home. And crucially, the reason that he's ended up in the army is because he killed a man. 
And I think establishing the fact that he is capable of murder or of killing someone is quite important in terms of his character and what happens in the opera, but we, we often sort of don't kind of get that. Carmen, on the other hand, there's, there's none of that sort of backstory written into the opera. So what Ed said is that it's kind of curious, given that this is an opera called Carmen, that in a sense she seems to be quite absent in, her, in a sense from her own story. She is only seen through other people's eyes uh, or talked about by, by other people. So for him it was very important to establish a backstory for her. Uh, and it's not in this case that she has a husband or at least a current husband, but she does have a child. And that is a very significant move because it raises the stakes in many ways. Also then, an interesting corollary to that is that Michaela is clearly pregnant as well in this production. And you know, we assume that this is Don Jose's child, that's certainly what she wants to convince him of. So you've got, you know, in a sense, it's, it's sort of quite interesting that, the, uh, that different ideas of motherhood or potential mothers are, are being set up. We've got Don Jose's own mother, who is a very significant influence, even though she never appears in the opera. Uh, Carmen is a mother, and Michaela is a mother-to-be. And Carmen also has a job, and her job is being the star attraction in Lilith Pastia's bar. And so her numbers, like the, you know, the famous Segredilla and the even more famous Habanera, are numbers that she performs. These are the, uh, her kind of great audience favourites, I suppose. Susan McClary is Finette H. Kulas Professor of Music at Case Western Reserve University and is one of a select few academics whose ideas can genuinely be said to have changed the discipline in which she works, not least through her groundbreaking 1991 book, Feminine Endings. In this and subsequent volumes such as Conventional Wisdom from 2000, Susan has explored the cultural analysis of music in both the European canon and contemporary popular genres. Her work engages with the ways in which meaning is made and transmitted through music, and deals with this elusive medium as a set of social practices. Her many outstanding contribution to opera studies include a recent monograph on the productions of Peter Sellers and her 1992 book, Georges Bizet, Carmen, which remains an essential text on this work. Susan's book ended with the comment that, in the hands of its interpreters, Carmen has become an artwork of the late 20th century, and the puzzle of Bizet's masterpiece will pass on, still unresolved, to future generations. That was written 30 years ago, and Carmen has indeed been bequeathed to future generations, as we heard from Stuart. Susan joined us from a snowy Cleveland 
to unpick the puzzle at the heart of Bizet's opera. Who is Carmen? I don't know that you would ask that question of most opera characters. But the question, who is Carmen, does arise all the time. And uh, the character Carmen has been a conundrum since she was first introduced in Prosper Mary May's novella, Carmen, in 1845. No one knew quite what to make of this woman who was able to seduce, allure men of considerable social status. The novella became a sort of scandal and 30 years later, Bizet decided this is what he wanted to do for the opera he had been commissioned to write for the opera comique. Lots of things happened in the reconstruction of Mary May's uh, novella for the operatic stage. For one thing, Mary May relies on a series of filters. We have a French academic who has gone to Spain He encounters Don José. He later is almost done under by Carmen. We have José, and we only hear about the story we know from the opera as José is telling it in retrospect after he has murdered her. So uh, Carmen has very little voice in the novella, and yet she is always the character who threatens to break through. By putting that story on the stage without all of those narrative filters, we get to hear Carmen. We get to be seduced by her ourselves, along with Don Jose and everyone around her. That made her a much more dangerous character. And in the reviews of the first performance, the French critics were really aghast at the sexual license, the dancing styles, the uh, impertinence, the violence of this woman. This is not the kind of woman who had ever been put on the stage again. So what do we make of her? Do we go along with one of the principal readings of this opera for a very long time, that she's a femme fatale? Uh, She is a woman who lures men to their deaths. Or do we see her as the victim of misogyny, racism, imperialism, all of which are explicitly present in both the novella and in the opera? And that's the dilemma we always come back to when we're trying to stage this. Do we allow Harman to have agency? Or is she a victim or is she a monster? I mean, these are the problems that we have wrestled with since the opera was first premiered. Wonderful, thank you. One of the things that intrigues me about Bizet's presentation of Carmen is that so much of her dialogue or uh, interactions with other characters is at a remove. There's a mask that she wears all of the time, which hides her even more from scrutiny. Can you talk more about La Carmanchita, the uh, performance that Carmen provides? Yes, of course. Carmen almost never reveals 
her interiority, which is one of the reasons we go to opera. We want to hear the internal feelings of characters writ large in arias and airs. Carmen almost always is performing as a cabaret singer. Much of her music was drawn from the hits of the Parisian cabaret at that time, including the Habanera. And so we never know who is speaking there, whether she is performing or whether she is actually speaking for herself. There are only a very few places where we hear her in her own voice. One is in the card scene where she is uh, dealing out the tarot cards, finds that death always shows up. There she is speaking to herself and we get to hear her there. We also hear her as she is confronting Don Jose in the very last scene. There she is speaking. She is no longer singing popular songs. But for most of the opera, she is singing the, uh, the music of a cabaret. She is a performer. And that makes it very hard to get into whether she means what she says. José, on the other hand, is a completely bourgeois uh, character. He reveals himself, his heart on his sleeve in the flower song. We know who José is. Carmen drives him mad because he cannot know. Your mention of Don Jose reminds me that, of course, his music is that of the conventional operatic hero, and yet his personality, as it dissolves, becomes very much the villain by the end of the piece. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit more about the ways in which Bizet plays with operatic convention and stereotypes in his framing of these characters? Sure. And one of the things that struck me as bizarre and maybe even hilarious is in the original reviews of Carmen, many critics heard Jose as sounding like Wagner. You know, I mean, who can say? Uh, but, uh, but he does sing in endless melodies. He is rapturous. He is revealing his interiority. As uh, he is lured into joining the smugglers gang, he becomes increasingly violent. Now keep in mind that in Mary May, it's made very clear that he was abandoned uh, long before he engaged with Carmen. He had murdered someone in the Basque country where he comes from. He was on uh, the lamb. He was already a tremendously violent person. We do not get to see that uh, version of José in the opera until we are into the scenes where we're with the smugglers gang in the wilderness. And then of course, in the last scene where his violence is manifested in truly horrendous ways. I mean, he becomes a stalker quite explicitly so and is tracking Carmen down to kill her. So we have the degeneration of this character. What is interesting is that the principal readings of his character have been until very recently that he was this poor mama's boy who got destroyed by this woman. So he is not seen as violent. He is pushed into this by her. I mean, that's one of the things we have to untangle. When I wrote my Carmen book, that was still the writing interpretation. 
that Jose was destroyed by this horrible person. And we've had to look at all of this over and over again over the course of the last 30 years to see, are there other ways of dealing with this opera? And I think that Bizet gives us a great deal to work with. Carmen's music is the memorable music. She controls the score, whether she reveals herself or not. And that agency, the fact that she is the leader of the women in the cigar factory, she's able to uh, weasel her way out of prison. She's able to lead a band of bandits. I mean, she is really an extraordinary figure. And if you want to, you can make full use of what Bizet gives us for seeing her as someone who would be a hero if she were male in a different kind of opera. But because she's a woman, this trips over all kinds of taboos. I might say also that one of the things that has happened in the United States, at least since the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020, is that all uh, academics have been going back and looking at their usual playlists, looking at their assignments, and realizing how deeply racist so many of these texts actually are. Mary May is explicitly racist in his approach to Carmen. He spends a whole final part of his novella talking about how disgusting gypsies are, and especially gypsy women, how they stink, how they are, they're like dogs. Uh, so racism is just right there on the surface in Mary May. Is it in Bizet? That is, I think, another question. I mean, we do have the frame at the beginning of a group of imperial soldiers whose job it is to keep the native population under control. So that's what happens as soon as the curtain goes up. Imperialist army uh, controlling the native population. Carmen is always the one who is resisting, is confronting, is challenging all of those forms of authority. And I think that Bizet actually gives us a great deal to work with. You touched on something that I was going to bring up and actually in the way in which that Carmen's music so often is presented as other to the soldiers and by extension the audience. But there are moments in which she adopts the musical language of her oppressors in a way, in that love duet with Jose, she briefly taps into the type of music we might expect Michaela to sing. I mean, that opens up all sorts of fertile lines of inquiry around assimilation, about projection or presenting what the governing structures want to see. But it also, I think, throws up a relationship between Michaela and Carmen and the way in which Carmen is able to be Michaela, if she wants, but Michaela doesn't possess whatever it is that Carmen has that entices Don Jose so much. So that was more of a comment than a question in time-honoured academic tradition, but I wonder if you might um, speak more to the way in which Bizet's score presents different voices. Sure. One of the things that Mary May is concerned with in his novella is the fact that the Roma people are able to speak in the languages of all the civilized countries. 
because they're constantly moving around. Uh, but they can also sing, uh, speak secretly among themselves in Roma, which, of course, no educated person would ever bother to learn. So they are they're sort of a linguistic threat. They can understand the oppressors perfectly well. The oppressors cannot understand them. And that linguistic virtuosity is also something that was held against the Jews in the 19th century and the 20th century, that they move around, they are able to speak perfectly good French and German and Polish and wherever they are, but they also have this other side. And that has always struck terror into uh, the hearts of, of would-be oppressors. It happened in the Americas when the conquistadors came in and they forced the natives to learn Spanish, fine, but they also continued to do their own music and their own language. And that was considered terrifying. You know, so we have this, uh, this trope that goes through the whole history of imperialism, of uh, the ways you can try to impose your language and your culture on people you have conquered, but they still have these cultural legacies that they're able to draw upon, and you don't know anything about those. Mm -hmm. And Carmen is one of these figures. Um, Bizet will indeed give her opportunities where she can show that she knows how to sing music about interiority. She knows how to sound like Mikaela. But she also knows how to be a cabaret singer, and she knows how to lead her troop of Roma bandits. You know, so such a multiple threat here. Yeah, I think that's what gives her such depth as well, the fact she is all these things. She's not just a one-note character. She's um, a multiplicity. She's a symphony of contradictions and complexities and a real person for that. Um, I'm conscious of time, and I'm conscious that I promised the audience the opportunity for a question. The question concerns possible future productions critiquing gender and offering different portrayals. Is there a way Carmen can emerge from this as a hero within our current hegemonic structures as a patriarchy? Or do you think Carmen might offer alternative models that might point to potential change? Since feminists began paying serious attention uh, to Carmen, she has been increasingly understood to be a heroine. So I don't think it takes a lot of work to convince contemporary audiences that they should empathize with her, that they should see her as this, uh, this tragic heroic figure. You know, I, I looked to a number of productions. There was a production in Italy a couple of years ago in which she actually kills Don Jose in the last scene, you know, to you know, all the women in the audience get up and cheer. You know, when you start changing endings, then you have to say, you know, was that just because we're really tired of seeing her killed and why don't we turn the tables? That may be too simple. Are there other ways of doing this? I saw a production a long time ago uh, that starred Denise Graves as Carmen. And Don Jose uh, slashes her. She is bleeding. And he then sings his, oh, I'm so sorry. I loved her so much. And then, you know, the orchestra with its fanfares, everything dies out. 
And the director, Keith Warner, I think, had uh, Denise Graves keep getting up out of uh, the gore uh, of, of her blood and crawl in silence. And then she would collapse and then she would get up and crawl some more. And she did not die. Um, she was severely wounded. And the lights very, very gradually went out. And at, when the lights were finally completely out, the last thing we saw was she was continuing to crawl. It took about, it seemed like forever for anybody to clap. I mean, we were all in shock because we realized that we had been waiting for that moment of closure. And it happened. And she didn't close. And it, and it was horrifying. And, you know, you're, you're thinking, you know, you're supposed to be dead. No, 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 no. I don't want you to die. But what's going on here? We were all just uh, riveted for a very long time after that. Now, that's a production that keeps the murder intact, but that it also allows for that perpetuation of agency, that absolute refusal uh, to give in. I think there are a lot of things you can do with staging, keeping the music and the words intact, that can allow for uh, these different elements to come to the fore. The problems that Bizet raises in Carmen concerning sexuality, gender, race, imperialism, all of those things, we have not solved those. And every time we go through the opera Carmen again, we want to see if we can make it right this time, if somehow or other we can solve those problems. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all want to, uh, but, but the opera makes us realize how very far we are from solving any of those problems that are dramatized so very brilliantly in this opera. <laughs> Alice Gilmore is Opera North's access manager and has also worked for the company's community outreach programme. Her work seeks to make opera accessible to as wide an audience as possible and to break down barriers. Here's an excerpt from Alice's audio introduction for Carmen. Carmen is a vibrant and expressive woman of colour in her 20s or early 30s with shortish wavy black hair, usually a wig. On stage, presenting her public persona, she's known as La Carmencita. Strong-willed and uncompromising, she follows the bohemian life she was born to. Music and dance are in her blood. We began our conversation by returning to the contrast between Carmen and Carmen Cheetah and the way in which audio introductions to Carmen for visually impaired audiences bring that distinction to light. Audio description obviously is the way in which you can render something that is the, the visual side of the production understandable to people who are blind or partially sighted. So when we book an audio describer, they'll come along to um, some rehearsals, to the dress rehearsal, they'll work from the video of the production and prepare their take on how it looks. And the trick is to use as few words as possible to tell the story. You could write reams and reams and reams. You have to condense it so that it's sort of engaging to listen to. The audio introduction is something that people get sent beforehand. It's also put on our website. But it's only really ready uh, to, to finish writing and record 
probably a couple of days after the dress rehearsal. So there's always quite a quick turnaround. We do try and these days ensure that there might be chance to talk to the director or assistant director, uh, etc., like, um, to, to get a bit more information, make sure you're on the, wrong, the right track, that you're saying it's set in a certain time period or, or location. Uh, but Michelle would have prepared all of this uh, from those few kind of viewings, etc., and then uh, she'll run it past me and, and, and we'll make sure that we, we agree that we think it's a fairly good representation. What absolutely fascinates me about this, and when I was chatting to Alice in preparation for today, is that realisation that audio descriptions or signing provide a new level of engagement with opera performances that had been opaque to me in the way in which it can have such a powerful mediating role in what people hear or people see. Clearly, these audio descriptions have had a considerable impact on audiences. Could you tell us a bit more about your experiences of talking to mm. these audiences? Well, yeah, because, I mean, I, I do some of the audio describing as well myself, so it's incredibly powerful. For some people, they may have previously been opera lovers and have lost their sight later in life, or maybe they love opera but have been blind since birth, whatever. But it really... Uh, the advent of audio description, which is a technology that broadcasts the um, live description to a headset, usually via infrared, or these days people are developing systems with Wi-Fi, so it's, it's a new technology uh, to all intents and purposes, but it becomes enjoyable in the moment. The audio notes set the scene, the touch doors that they can come on give them a sensory perception of the, the costumes and the set, and then the description through the production that they'll hear in usually one earpiece helps them understand and enjoy the, the opera and, and get the laughs and understand the sadness at the right moment, the same as their sighted companion. It, it just brings it to life. You know, they, they wouldn't be able to enjoy it without. Audio descriptions obviously providing a wonderful way into this world. And actually, I think one of the things about uh, Michelle's descriptions um, is just the richness of that description, the way in which a dramatic entrance in a flamenco-inspired strapless red satin gown, I mean, it really does capture that particular presentation of Carmen, um, uh, a wonderful way, and a um, sexy deep pink bodysuit trimmed in black lace with matching long sleeve Valero jacket. There's a, there's a real kind of a care about this presentation here. Yeah. Um, which I, um, I love. So this is a wonderful resource that we've got for getting into the music uh, for the visually impaired, but we've also got uh, signing as well. Could you talk more about yes. that work? Well, that's a picture of uh, Paul Whitaker, who's our regular signer. He's signing performances of Carmen in Leeds next week and then in all of the tour venues. So we, we make a trailer where he's describing a bit about the show. So he's going to stress more the visual aspects. So for people who use BSL, he's there at the side of the stage. He's translating what's happening and he himself is profoundly deaf, and he learns the show off by heart. And he's using visual cues, looking to the side of him to know where he is, signing what's happening. And then we make sure that we reserve seats in that area of the auditorium for people who want the BSL so that they can see him. And there's a reduced ticket price, obviously, because seats in the stalls are quite expensive. Yeah. So yes, it's making the, the show accessible for people that use BSL. The way in which it, again, re packages the meanings of Carmen and the way in which it allows the visual to interact with um, the gestures. I think it's an absolutely fabulous initiative. And of course, uh, in your work, you've also not only engaged um, communities with various visual and hearing impairments, but you've gone out 
into the wider community as well to work on access. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, we have um, a large scheme called our Encore Scheme where we engage with over 75 groups around the Leeds, Greater Leeds area, encouraging people to come in on a free ticket to start with, come and view our work, come a few times. People potentially then, according to their means, can be graduated to a suggested contribution. And to make it accessible, we, we get to know the groups, we'll go out and meet them, We'll talk about what the operas are coming up this season, the story, etc. And then for six groups every year out of the Encore scheme, we build a closer relationship and we'll bring work out to them. So there might be a workshop, there might be, um, we'll bring a singer from the chorus to do something. We'll bring them on a backstage tour. So they really get to know the company. And uh, in the case of Carmen last season, we took out two members of our education team to do singing workshops. And basically just to, to have fun and teach people a few of the songs and everyone goes, oh, I know this song, I've heard this before, you know, that kind of thing. And I've just listed there really the, the rough idea of how a lot of our sessions would run. Uh, so we always do an introductory session, usually always sitting in a circle, that's, you know, key. Everyone introducing themselves, warm-up activities. So our singing uh, coaches from the education team are hugely experienced in making it really fun, warming up the voice, doing fun songs and then learning songs from the show. So we did Habanera and Torridor. Sometimes people would take a solo and, you know, tweaking it to, to work with different groups. So there were some refugee and asylum seeker groups who work with a lot of them. English isn't their first language. So we would concentrate less on the words, more of the actions and just the singing of, uh, of the words, perhaps without full lyrics. And then we also, with this production, we showed people some of the pictures. So we worked with some groups that were um, older, people from a group called Feel Good Factor based in Chapeltown in Leeds, uh, most of them black, older women. And we knew possibly showing them a picture of Crystal uh, as Carmen was going to make them go, yeah, 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 I'll definitely come and see that. And out of all the groups that we took the singing workshops to, all of them except one group, which we knew weren't going to come, there were adults, young adults with learning difficulties and uh, their group leader said they thought it was a bit too long and it was in the evening so they'll come to something else later in the year in a, uh, to a matinee all the others after this workshop came to the show and it just helped them get to know the story feel welcome they knew us so they'd see us outside the the front door of the theatre giving them the tickets on the night mm. and it just makes it that much more manageable I guess for people that might feel opera's not for them. Absolutely and I imagine the embodied experience of singing the popular tunes as well is it's very different from just uh, listening to them and so yeah. again it's another way of connecting and we've got some of the feedback from the events here as well uh, enjoyed more than my Pilates class um, and <laughs> Well, of course. Um, I didn't realise we were going to sing, but enjoy getting involved. I mean, what sort of comes out of this, uh, you know, out of my comfort zone, but really loved it. It really seemed to connect people with the music. Well, I think singing anyway, if you get people to sing, and, you know, often people are a bit reluctant, say, oh, I can't sing, I don't want people from up north coming. Um, as soon as they do it, and uh, you all have fun together, if, if, the, if the workshop leader can make it really fun, yeah, people do get so much out of it. And like you say, you know, say singing Habanera with its very chromatic kind of line, people have heard it so many times before, but when they try and sing it, it's like, oh, da, 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 you know. And they're really proud of themselves when they get it right. And we also did harmonies with some of them, so we had some people holding the lower note and the others coming down. And people were, yeah, people are always chuffed when they sing a bit of harmony, it sounds great, so it generates that great feeling. And it must be very useful in these COVID times to train up a lot of understudies, uh, just in case. <laughs> yeah. um, Good point. 
So you also have Encore Nights. Can you uh, explain a bit more about this scheme? Well, sure. Um, so the Encore uh, scheme was, was like what I mentioned before. So yeah. the six groups we work with more closely are chosen from the Encore scheme. Um, and that's an amazing picture of uh, St Augustine's, who were actually Encore Plus partners last year. Uh, they came up all the way from Halifax on the train. Um, Stella, one of the ladies, is in a wheelchair, and they were sort of rushing up from the train, you know, five minutes before curtain up. But they're incredible. You know, they, they, they get very little funding, and they pull together enough money to get train tickets for everyone and brought them along. Absolutely loved coming to it. They'd had the singing workshop as well, so they knew the songs and everything. And it's just absolute testament to the group leaders that run these groups, as well as the participants that we meet, that they work so hard to help bring people along. It's often out of their work time because it's in the evenings but they do it for the love they do it because they know what impact it has on people's well-being just the joy of going out together on a night out in Leeds if you're perhaps in the outskirts or whatever is a huge thrill and a, and a huge thing to do and a confidence building fun activity. Alice's discussion raised many questions with the audience. The first was Given that you will be dealing with groups from various minority backgrounds and refugees who have potentially experienced issues of power and oppression in their own lives, how much do you discuss sensitive content and trigger warnings? We do always tell them, yes, we do, because it, it can be very overwhelming. We had have people react very strongly to things because it's telling their story, and yeah. opera does often tell the story of people who are oppressed. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we do say... Um, the tradition of most operas that we're going to tell you about, this one is a tragic one, there is death at the end, so we tell them what's going to happen, but it, you know, they're, they're very aware that it's on the stage. But, but yeah, we, we make sure they know, we mm. make sure that we tell them a lot about how it's staged. Mm. Um, there was one, La Vida Breve, it was very austere and very oppressive, and people, yeah, and there were a lot of reactions to that where people actually, a couple of people had to leave because they found it uh, so reminiscent of, of work that they'd done in their lives. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good point. Really interesting. Prepare people. And another question from the audience. How do you become aware of the groups with whom you work? It's, it's basically uh, that when the scheme started off, you know, it was just looking online. Where is there a group meeting in Chapeltown or, or in LS14? Contacting them and, say, and then having a meeting and saying, what kind of people do you work with? What barriers do you think they face to coming in to see a show in Leesburg Theatre? And then if they seem like a good fit, they become part of the scheme then we send them the information about the events. So we're constantly looking. Now that the scheme is quite well known throughout Leeds, people sometimes just get in touch with us, um, or people might move jobs and go and start working a new charity um, as a group leader, and they'll get in touch and say, can we now join? So it's kind of like that word of mouth. So if you know any groups, put them in touch. Finally, in response to Alice talking about taking the Toreador song into the community, one of the audience asked, what is it about that song that gets people going. It's got a lovely kind of marching rhythm, and then everyone loves kind of flicking the, the, the thing. You know, we, do, we did all the actions to it. And I mean, it's played everywhere. Everyone knows it. It's yeah. played every time they do Formula One podium wins, apparently. Um, it's on so many ads. But yeah, is it the rhythm, Ed? Can you talk about the Toreador song? <laughs> oh, we run out of time. Um, <laughs> Opening night of Carmen in the autumn, there was somebody in the stalls who sang along to the Toreador song, and it was, I was sitting two rows behind. It was really interesting that the audience around this woman 
some of them thought this was terrific, that she was so, in, she'd lost it, she was lost in it. It wasn't a decision to join in, it was involuntary. So some people thought this was wonderful. Other people were really cross that somebody was singing while they paid 70 quid for, a, for an opera ticket. It's really interesting. It's a phenomenon, the Toreador. So well, I think. you've just reminded me, Dom, as well. We did, um, in fact, have a dementia-friendly matinee of Carmen last season, and uh, it was incredible, the amount of people singing along, but specifically to that one, and uh, loads of people clapping along when it came back, I think, nearer the end. Yeah, yeah. And, and people were clapping along, and myself and another workmate, Karen, we were clapping along as well, going, I can't believe we're clapping along to an opera, and we really enjoyed the freedom to do that. So uh, it, was, it was amazing to be able to offer a relaxed environment where people can do that, because they feel compelled to. It does have that kind of status as a tune. Stephen Rodwell is Opera North's Head of Costume and Wigs. His role is to realise the costume ideas of the designer, to work to find affordable and practical solutions, and to coordinate the making or purchasing of costumes and wigs. These elements not only create and reinforce the world that the director has envisaged, but they can also communicate a character's journey through the plot. I asked Stephen how these elements are key to establishing the contrast between the artifice and glamour of the performers, and the more gritty, realistic world of the smugglers in Opera North's Carmen. In the first act, we're seeing the world of performance, I suppose. It's set in the burlesque bar, because this production, obviously, is not a conventional one. It's not set in Seville in the 1880s. It's set somewhere entirely different. It has a completely different context. And I think what the director and designer wanted to suggest was that the first time we see Carmen, she is, in fact, performing. You know, she flies in on this swing, in this red corset with this big train hanging off it, and all the other women in oh, this space are working. They are working women. So they're either other burlesque performers or they're selling cigarettes. And the men who come into this space are mostly the army men. So you get this kind of very sort of um, quite rigidly defined world, I suppose. And it's all about artifice. The women are all kind of quite made up and they're wearing wigs. So it's kind of, it's, it's, they're not the real women. They're, they're working, they're presenting uh, persona, I suppose, to their, their customers, which are the, the soldiers. And Carmen's first entrance is incredibly dramatic. She flies in on this swing and she's got this towering mantilla on and this huge skirt that gets stripped off to reveal her just wear, basically just wearing a corset and a mantilla. And then she goes into this number and ends up surrounded by a bed of red burlesque fans, which is kind of obviously a, 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 quite, a, quite a dramatic moment. The fans were quite a late sort of addition to the concept, really. I had to produce a lot of those at very short notice with very little money. So, you know, that's the magic of theatre for you. So, yes, yeah, so that's what we see initially. And then later on in the piece, we see the real world. We see the smugglers. We see the, the same women that we've seen before, but they're not in their working garb. They're not wearing their cocktail dresses or their burlesque outfits. They're wearing gritty clothes that are a bit grubby and their hair is less styled. It's still sort of got that late 1960s um, period setting, but you very much get the sense that we are seeing two different worlds, and that's what the costumes do. Absolutely. And I love the sort of uh, reference images that you have to go on and how they sort of lead into the look themselves. 
So let's um, go back to Carmen and La Carmen Cheetah herself. I think one of the things that struck me seeing that first run is the way in which her visual aesthetic changed according to location, whether she was backstage, on stage, as you would expect that contrast there, but the way she dressed for Escamillo, for instance, or tied in with him. Can you talk more about her journey as a character through costume? Yeah, so throughout Act One, which is, you know, the world of the bar, we see her wearing costumes. I've talked about the red outfit that we first see her in, but she also then appears in this pink and black outfit, which you'll see there, where she sat on the swing. That's the end of Act One. There's been a big fight. She's brought in wearing this outfit. It's another costume that she's been wearing. And it's a sort of take on a matador outfit, except that we've customised it. We've turned it into shorts, and she's wearing like a basque with it and a little jacket. So the whole thing's kind of like a sort of parody of that. The idea being that she's been performing some kind of act, and this is what she wears for that act, whatever that might be. But then at the beginning of Act Two, we start to see the real world. So we see Carmen Frasquito and Mercedes, and they're coming off stage. They've finished an act. So basically, they've stripped down to their underwear. They're burlesque performers, so we see them in these kind of corset things and cami knickers, and they put dressing gowns and slippers on. So you get the, a mixture of kind of like sexy and mundane, and they go into the dressing room, which is all a bit dingy, and it's full of costumes, and it's full of junk, and it's all a bit kind of like... You know, it's very much a contrast to what we've seen before, and that's reflected in those clothes. And during this scene, Carmen's preparing to go and meet, I think initially, Escamillo, but then Don Jose rocks up. So you see her getting dressed in kind of her everyday clothes, which is a very simple uh, Chartreuse yellow dress. And the idea as well is that Carmen always wears wigs. She wears wigs in her shows, she wears wigs in real life, which a lot of women in that period did anyway. And the one time that we really get a flash of the real Carmen is when she pulls her wig off and throws it on the floor because she's so angry with Don Jose. And then you see this very kind of different image of Carmen. Suddenly, she's sort of laid bare in this kind of moment of anger, which I thought was quite, quite an interesting touch by the director. Mm. But yeah, and from then on, at the very end of the opera, we see Carmen again in a different look. And by that time, she's very much allied with Escamillo. She's tied in with him, and he's about to kind of do his performance. So she's wearing a version of what he's wearing. And it's a bit theatrical, it's a little bit stylized, and it's back in that almost like performing world again. She's taken on a different role, though, this time. They're, they're both performers in a way, aren't they? She's sort of um, entering in that celebrity world, uh, matching clothes. Um. That's right, because Escamilla's not your kind of standard bullfighter in this version. He's, kind of, he's, he's like a singer, really, and we see him in two outfits. And the last outfit that we see him in is his performing costume, I suppose. It's kind of made of satin. It's got rhinestones on it. It's got silver fringing, and the whole thing lights up as well. Well, most of it lights up on cue. So, you know, it's very much a kind of, oh, you know, that's not real, is it? That's definitely a, a costume. Wonderful. Uh, Carmen dons a black raincoat at one point, and that, was that intended as a visual contrast to Michaela's clothes, who wears a lighter coat? It may well have been. If it was, I wasn't privy to that information. <laughs> it's just how it came about. Uh, but, yeah, I suppose you could look at it like that. They, they put those coats on in the end of Act 3 because... Uh, they're all kind of engaged in various, various nefarious activities. So the idea is they're putting coats on, they're outside, they're in the woods, they're doing whatever they're doing, and it kind of takes down, to a degree, the colours of what they're wearing because it's supposed to be a darker scene in terms of, like, time and mood. Yeah. So that's the, the logic of that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Michael, as we can see here, was uh, modelled on 
Catherine Deneuve. Yes, in uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was a nice touch, really, because normally, Michaela, she's a bit of a drip, if I'm totally honest. You know, in previous productions, she's turned up wearing a beret and stuff like that. But this was a slightly more interesting take. And obviously, the idea of her being pregnant, that, again, was a very light, late idea. The director decided that he wanted her to be pregnant in the week that we started the costume fittings. So we had to be pretty nifty about kind of adapting that to accommodate you know, the pregnancy padding, which actually increases throughout the show with the passage of time. Uh, and in that three where she emerges at a most heavily pregnant, she seems to be attempting to take Carmen on at her own game, dismally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her big goal is she wants to get Don Jose back. You know, she wants to get him back home to his mother, his eternal mother. And, you know, so she's using kind of, I suppose, Carmen, a bit of Carmen's artifice to try and fight that battle, but not really succeeding terribly well. Um, because, you know, even though she's put a bit of makeup on, put her hair up and put this dress on, she's heavily pregnant by now. And she's also wearing flat shoes. So it's all a bit kind of, you know, nice try, but no cigar. <laughs> Obviously, we've got a chorus as well and dancers and the festive atmosphere at the end. How do you go about clothing the cast in this way when, you, when you've got to set up a large crowd scene of everyone in rodeo gear? How would you go about this? Well, you can imagine it involves quite a bit of preparation. I mean, obviously, some things we have to make. Uh, for instance, the, the, the world of performance, we, we ended up making some of that stuff. Uh, but some of it was bought as well, because it was sort of set in the late 1960s. We actually kind of bought quite a bit of vintage clothing, mixed it in with a bit of modern clothing and accessories and things to create that world. So at the end, instead of everybody being at a fiesta or a bullfight, they're at a rodeo. Mm. So their clothes carry on from Act 3. We see elements of their day clothing, which are augmented with cowboy hats and cowboy boots and things like that. So it's quite a lot of work in, you know, in real terms obtaining fabrics to make costumes and then buying garments as well. And also, you know, actually, it's sort of, it has a, a strong element of sustainability because we're buying existing garments and repurposing them. So that's, uh, that's yeah. quite a good thing too. I think the visual aesthetic links very well to what I was talking earlier about the exoticism of the music. It might not be Spanish, the clothing, although there are the matador trims that I think uh, reference it, but there's a sense of festive clothing that link with a lot of the Spanish-inflected music in the opera as well. And that sort of gives, draws our attention, I think, to the communal celebratory elements of Bizet's music, if not necessarily the Spanish locale. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the clothes really do what they have to do in each particular scene. I mean, I don't, I don't know that they ever have a particularly Spanish flavour to them, because that's not the context of the yeah. piece. But what they do do is describe that particular scene and what's happening in that particular scene. So in the burlesque scenes, that's what those clothes, those costumes look like. In the rodeo at the end, it's very clear where we are. You know, we're not at a bullfight. Yeah. They're all doing line dancing. So, you know, it's, the message is very kind of, you know, out there. For me, in that first run, the two costumes that stuck in the memory for the longest, first of all, Carmen's entrance, which we've already described, but Escamillo's lit-up costume. <laughs> Could you talk a bit more about just the practicality of uh, bringing someone in 
with neon lights. Well, the light-up costume, I mean, to be honest, that, that's not really our thing, doing lights in costumes. Normally, our electrics department would tackle that. But because we were working under COVID restrictions and things like that, we had to bite the bullet and go for it. So what we did was use LEDs. Uh, and initially, that costume was only ever going to be seen in Act 4. And it's very brief, the appearance of Escamillo in Act 4. He literally comes in, sings a bit, and then that's it. And the rest of that act is about Don Jose, you know, being incredibly violent and killing Carmen. But then the director decided that he wanted him to wear that outfit in Act 3. Now, in Act 3, he has a big fight with Don Jose, and he has to climb up a huge amount of scaffolding and do all kinds of things in it, which we never anticipated him doing. And one of the technical problems that we had was that the strip LED lighting that we'd put, which is basically in the seams of the outfit, started to break because he had now had so much action in it, which we hadn't planned for. So that was... Uh, fairly challenging, as you can imagine. So we ended up having to replace the lights continually, which is quite a lot of work. Yeah. I think one of the inspired decisions behind the production in an opera which so often categorises particular gender roles and gender stereotypes in a certain way was to include a non-binary performer as well. Um, can you talk more about the costume that we see there? Well, the, the costume that we see there is, is something that kind of... It went on a bit of a journey, because initially the idea was that Lilith's Pasture was in drag. So when we first see Lilith's Pasture, they are wearing you know, a cocktail frock and a wig, and it's very definitely a feminine outfit. But by the time we get to this, because there's an, um, a whole number before this as well, where we see Lilith's Pasture actually divesting themselves of elements of what we've seen before, like the wig and the jewellery and things like that, and just appearing in a very simple pair of trousers and a vest. And then we see Lilith's Pasture again, and this is kind of like, this has no gender, this outfit. It's, it's neither male nor female anymore. So it's kind of, you know, it's an interesting kind of journey that Lilith's Pasture goes on from when we first see them to the very yeah. end. And I think that that moment of divestment, is that at the start of Act 3 with the yeah. pastoral? Yeah, so the start of Act 3, as you may know, we hear... Bizet's famous uh, pastoral music at that point, and um, very typical musical references to nature. And I think the divestment of clothing that we see there, throwing up at the same time the social constructs around gender and forcing us to engage with notions of nature and society and culture, I th found that a very uh, provocative and challenging um, and thought-provoking moment there. And I think the the outfit and the music all come together and the motions. Yeah, I mean, point. initially, this, this costume was supposed to have, like, a Bondo sort of bra top with it and a lady's wig and jewellery. And we stripped those elements away to kind of give it a less kind of... We didn't want to see what we'd seen before. It needed to be something a bit less definite and a bit kind of cleaner, in a way, I suppose, in terms of, um, mm -hmm. you know, concept. And I think that's what that does very, really well. I'd like, if I could, to move back to these design sketches that you uh, kindly shared with us um, and just wonder how we go from these visual references to the final costume. I mean, what's the process by which we get from vague ideas to stunning realisation? Well, I think you can see on that sheet that the ideas are really quite clear. I mean, you've got those kind of reference ideas through the middle and then the colour. But those sketches really tell you pretty much what you need to know about this costume. 
And I think if you look at them in detail, you'll see that like, you know, the corset is there, the little frill, the long skirt with all the frills behind it. Uh, and another interesting aspect of this costume is that there's a moment in the opera when Carmen gives Don Jose a flower. Well, in this, it's not a flower. It's part of her costume that she takes off. It's like a little bustle thing, a flower, and there's a flower in the middle of it. And she, you know, she pulls it off and pulls the flower out and gives it to him. So it takes on a different meaning. She's giving him like a part of her kind of, you know, her performance in a way. But you, I think you can see very clearly, the designer's drawings tell you pretty much what you need to know about what that costume needs to look like. And the discussions I then have are about what kind of materials we're going to use and how we're actually going to construct it technically and who's going to do that. So I think that those sheets actually give you a very kind of, a fairly clear idea of what, what that ends up being. We had a question from the audience about the degree to which performers have a say in their costumes. Do they normally accept the designs that they are given? Ideally, yes. No, of course <laughs> they don't. I mean, it, it varies hugely. It depends on the performer. I mean, uh, opera singers are a different breed to actors. Actors will turn up for a fitting. They'll have very definite ideas about this, that and the other. Um, some singers do, some singers don't. I mean, in this particular instance, the designer took the trouble to get in touch with Crystal, the performer, to ask her about the colour of the dress that she wears in Act 2, when she puts on her real clothes, and which colour she would like that to be. She gave her a, some choices as to what it should be, and she, you know, Crystal picked that chartreuse yellow, which, you know, in hindsight, was a really good choice. That's a very kind of strong colour, and in that scene, it's very kind of powerful. So, you know, some singers will have ideas about this, that, and the other. I mean, I think, ultimately, their primary concern is that being... A, about, it's about being able to perform, being, about being able to sing and act and create that character in what they're wearing. And our job is to help them to do that in, you know, however they need us to do that. So whether it's technically or aesthetically or practically. You've been listening to a special edition of Thinking with Opera, recorded live at the Howard Assembly Room at Opera North in February 2022. The Carmen Carmen Cheetah Symposium was part of the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds and was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council.